Well, hello, everyone. And uh, I'm excited today to have another conversation, polyvagal informed conversation. My guest uh, today is Amy Stenger Sullivan. I hope I didn't butcher that. No, uh, you did. <laughs> I'm glad because uh, I'm used to calling you Amy and I. I think it's the first time I really read your last name out. <laughs> um, Amy is a clinical counselor uh, and a trainer. Uh, and um, Amy is also a trainer in the Deb Dana's Foundation uh, of Polyvagal um, Informed Practice. And that's how we got to know each other first by being in the training and now as being colleagues. Uh, and I'm so happy to have this conversation with you, Amy. Welcome. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Yeah. Can you let us know a little bit more about um, whether your work or how did you come across polyvagal yeah. theory, which is we all love to talk about. Right. <laughs> um, so prior to becoming a clinical mental health counselor, I was a massage therapist for 20 years. And around um, I don't know, like 12 years ago, I became, I had always taught infant massage to parents, mm. massage their babies. That was like uh, early family stuff, pregnancy massage, postpartum massage was really a specialty of mine. And um, many years ago, I became the owner of an infant massage training company. i um, purchased it from somebody else. And when I really went deep into the information that she was sharing, that's where I found the polyvagal theory. And um, it immediately interests me, I think, because it's um, founded in our nervous system and in what happens in the body. And that's where my interest lied at that time as a massage therapist. Um, and really, they were using the polyvagal theory as the science behind how babies attach to their caregivers and looking specifically at the cues, because obviously babies don't have language, so verbal language. So their language becomes their cry, the tone of their cry, their facial expression, their body movements, you know, even you'll even see little ones really just kind of extend a hand and um, ask for space in that way. So um, I really started to focus in on how could we help parents read the body language of their babies because that, that was being informed by their nervous system, if they felt safe or not, if they were ready to share eye gazing and have connection or if they sort of needed a timeout from that. Um, and so as I learned that, and I'm learning the cues that babies give, it, it kind of hit me between the eyes, like, oh my gosh, I do some of these things. Like I will it's drop just the baby stuff, right? <laughs> I will dry, drop eye contact when I felt like I had too much or my, you know, I feel overwhelmed. Um, I will create space. My body tenses, all of our bodies tense in very similar patterns to babies. We just notice it in our babies more perhaps because we're constantly tending to them, hopefully tending to them. Because yeah. um, we don't have the language to right. express. Their language is 
their body movements, their facial expression, and the tone of the cry or verbal, you know, the, 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 what does Deb call them? Verbal bursts. You know, they might not be crying, but their laugh and their laugh sounds different in different situations. And so becoming attuned to that. So first I noticed what I did with my eye contact. And then I started to realize, oh my gosh, I grew up in a home where tone of voice, a harsh tone of voice was used to indicate displeasure, you know, something better change or be different. And um, also uh, that I use that tone of voice with especially my immediate family, which isn't nice, but it was my nervous system saying something's not quite right. And once I realized that, I started on a path of discovering how I could use the information from the polyvagal theory to adjust my behavior. So I would be um, a more open human being, that I would be more receptive to people, that I would show up differently as a parent. Yeah, that's um, it's it's amazing. You know, sometimes when we're looking at kids and I remember reading this as my kids were younger, is that babies are like um, a species on their own. Like, like we sometimes forget that they're humans. They're just little humans. And so we we assume things about babies that we might not assume things with, you know, uh, adults. And there's always this which um, um, I'm glad that I I've never did, but I know a lot of uh, parents do because it was the advice of like letting babies cry to sleep yes. and all that. It's like they are little humans. And if you see an adult crying, you wouldn't let them, okay, go cry and tell you're uh, well, and then we can speak. So it's that. I'm I'm curious and I um, about... From a polyvagal perspective, of you know, even before birth, in utero, mm-hmm. how is the you know the nervous system is developing? And I know it's usually the last two months. Basically, mm-hmm. am I correct in that? Where it- well, it, interestingly enough, the first two things that start to form when a baby is conceived is the nervous system and the skin. Mm-hmm. So it's. Like- What's going to, the, the system that's going to make this baby grow and develop, and then it's container. Yeah. So they're both formed from the same embryonic layer, the ectoderm that, and then once that container and that intelligence of the nervous system is created, it then starts to develop the rest of the baby. So the nervous system is on board early and the sympathetic nervous system is active at about 32 weeks in utero. So around, you know, 40 weeks is really 10 months, but who's counting, you know, so around the eight month um, uh, mark, the baby is more responsive than, you know, what it hears outside of the womb or what's happening for mom, that baby has a separate nervous system response than mom does. Yeah. Then that can, so we're born without our nervous system being fully developed, just like everything in our body continues to develop. And then eventually we hit that tipping point where it starts to deteriorate. (laughs) Yes. But, (laughs) 
Yeah, it's like everything is continuing to develop. And um, there's a process called myelination. So myelin is a protective sheath around all of our nerve fibers. Mm -hmm. And when we're born, it started, myelination has started, but it's really in the first year, even up to three years where that sheath continues to develop. And that protective coating helps our nerves send clearer messages and communicate with each other more clearly and effectively. Um, and let's, let's, I, I was intrigued by, you know, of course, the nervous system is from uh, day one. And also it, it cannot, you know, it's amazing that our skin is actually part of our nervous system. It comes from the same, uh, mm. uh, but in, in, in development. And of, of course, I, think baby's development or uh, in utero, it's, it's following the hierarchy of the nervous system. So, so the, um, um, you said the sympathetic kind of, uh, is developed. Uh, yeah. So functionally, functionally it's developed. Yeah. So like the anatomy of it oh. and then the physiology starts to come in. It's, and, and the dorsal, so the dorsal would be the first one that starts developing with around yeah so the nervous system as a whole is always growing so the the uh, parasympathetic pathways which include both the ventral and dorsal mm. um, responses is active too but it continues to develop because it's what really helps that develop once we're born is our co-regulation so there are things that help that myelination process, like skin-to-skin -skin contact, infant massage. So, you know, massaging the skin affects the nervous system in a way, again, as long as that touch is positive and welcome. Yeah, it yeah. helps that myelin grow so the nervous system as a whole, both sympathetic and parasympathetic, become more effective. Okay. Yeah. Um. um I'm wondering as, as how, you know, everything that happens to us and you talk about co-regulation uh, kind of shapes and that's our, how, how our nervous system is shaped and, and developed and affects almost everything we do. Mm -hmm. um, it, does that shaping start from in utero? In, yes. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more? Because, I've, you know, there is research now that shows that the, you know, of course, the nervous system of the um, or, or what the mother uh, is doing or happening to her uh, stress level affects the infant from what, what is happening from that lens of the nervous system? Yeah. So, you know, the mother and, and baby share, you know, hormones, neurotransmitters, blood, fluids, that's all happening. Um, all the time. So what happens to mom does influence what's happening for baby. So um, given, you know, her relationships, her stress level, her food intake, it's not that it's putting like this massive permanent mark on the baby, unless it's something major, right? Um, but it does influence the baby. I think the reverse can happen too. Yeah. You know, that a I remember when I was pregnant with my Otis and I just felt like I was at, at a very high spiritual level. I was doing exactly what I was supposed to do in my life for the first time when, when I was carrying her, there was just this real calm. 
And I remember my mom saying to me, you're, you're nicer now that you're pregnant. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if it was a mix of hormones or just that I had that sense that this was the right thing. But um, I do think it's a reciprocal relationship. It's not just what mom's doing. Oh, you know, yeah. That affects that the baby. But also if the baby is ill or needing something or the pregnancy is not going well, that reciprocal relationship happens as well. So, you know. Yeah. So fr from that, I was in a conversation uh, last week about, you know, kind of being how sometimes people are, are more prone to, uh, you know, their home away from home being from to dorsal and or sympathetic or or being in a free state and sometimes uh, you know it, babies feel different and mm -hmm. i'm wondering is how much of that is being you know shaped in utero of course there's a lot of things and yeah. and in no means uh, what i'm saying is you know it's everything is the mother's fault right. but it's it, it, it's it also interesting that even as traits that it could start to develop from that, of course, nurture after has a big role. I, right. This is quite even more personal to me because my, my second child was born at 32 weeks mm -hmm. and I, I did not know anything about nervous system polyvagal uh, at that time. But of course, there was this encouragement of skin to skin and, and mm -hmm. doing all that. And um, then just to look at how compromised his nervous system development, even with the myelination. So again, w with that, what is being premature does to the nervous system? Well, how the nervous system reacts to being outside in the world, getting more maybe unregulated or less regulated because in womb, there's a lot of regulation and babies get yeah. what they need to get. They're in that nice, warm environment of, you know. They're floating. They don't feel gravity. The noises are muted. Like every sense that they have developed, it's it's uh, muted. It, there's a softness to it. And then we get born. What happens? We're, yeah, we're in air. We're feeling gravity. We have more space, which can be scary, right? Where babies are kind of almost shaking and that kind of thing. And um, in terms of preemies, I mean, they've done such incredible work around sort of recreating the wool to the best that they can for premature babies, where again, we're really pushing kangaroo care. So they have a sense of closeness with us and they have that um, sort of physical boundary that we have in the womb that we don't have sort of an open air. And, and so um, encouraging us to, to hold our babies close, massage for a medically stable um, premature baby is really beneficial. It helps them learn their boundaries too like the boundary of their body separate from our body, which is really helpful um, for them. And um, that, like everything they do in the hospital, they're doing a lot of medical tests. That can be hard for the babies. I think that's something to really watch. Um, but in the meantime, having that close contact with primary caregivers is really important to help not only the nervous system, but, you know, if the lungs need support, 
The other thing that's interesting to me is that, so when babies are born, their immediate have tos are to breathe, right? That's been regulated for them to ingest food through their mouth, not through the, you know, umbilical cord to be able to digest that food and then to release it. And then they're suddenly responsible for heat regulation in their body. Yeah. So in the best of circumstances, when a baby is full term and it's a great vaginal birth and everything's been good, that's a huge demand on a little body, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, when babies are premature, we have to really be monitoring and supporting those systems along the way. And I think that's what most NICUs are designed to do. And we're learning more and more about how this piece of containment and being close to caregivers is, is equally important. Yeah, it was it was amazing because, you know, as, as adults, we, we take everything for granted, breathing and, and, and digestion and all of that. Unless something, you know, disturb it or obstructed, we, then we notice. But I remember, of course... I'm glad he was my second child because otherwise I would be freaking out even more. Yes. Uh, but, you know, the nurse, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, if he stops breathing, just tickle his toe. Then I was like, what? Because his part of the brain and now understanding it, you know, even with that function of regulating breathing was still not fully developed. And I'm glad he was, he was in a good condition. So he had his challenges, but it's also um, highlighted for me how amazing this containment of the womb is to give the the myelination that starts at that time and um, the ability to regulate all of these things uh, and trying to replicate it with machines as to the best of uh, our ability. Um, so how is the ventral um, system and the myelination of the um, of that gets affected, whether preemies or, or newborn, with, you know, outside condition, if I can call it yeah. that, with, yeah. you know, care, safety, uh, you talked about temperature. How is that, how does the system kind of try to figure out? It's a lot of things to figure out. Yeah, it's a lot. We do more growth and development in age zero to three than we do the rest of our life combined, right? And it's amazing what the human body does. So, you know, the ventral system, really, we're looking at co-regulation, regulation into ourselves and regulation with whatever is brings us all. Yeah. When we're infants, that primary need is co-regulation with another and so myelination is happening and the more nurturance and co-regulation, positive co-regulation that we get, that also um, helps the myelination along. And then usually with babies, there is a lot of touch, even if it's, I mean, hopefully, even if it's not skin to skin. Um, and again, that helps develop it. So it's like co-regulation helps the myelination with more myelination, we're better able to co-regulate. And so it just keeps going. And you can watch that, you know, if you think back to the first year of your baby's life, they're not really paying attention to us in the first month or two, except for food and like just getting basic needs met. And, but they still need that. 
They still need to hear our voice. They still need to have eye to eye contact. It's one of the most beautiful designs of the human body is that if we feed from the breast, this eye contact that happens with the baby. So it always bums me out when I see people with like babies turned with their back to a person's belly and they're holding the bottle out here because the baby's kind of like free looking, but their spatial recognition, you know, their ability to see is about this height when they're first born. And to see a friendly face begins that process of co-regulation. Yeah, that's yeah. nature is, is amazing. If we just get out of the way with our, I'm with you, with our, you know, techniques and, and uh, what shouldn't, what shouldn't happen and what would, uh, it's, uh, things have gone so many different, you know, wrong ways. Yeah. Moving on from that a little bit in the first, you know, few years where, we know experiences affect how our nervous system is regulated or dysregulated when with some of the things that might not be like terrible things. Like I had actually, oh, someone asked me at this question about, you know, showers and bathing a baby with cold water and, and all of that. How is that could be a shock to the, the, the baby system? Mm-hmm. And there was, she was telling me about um, someone who had that her child was you know, exposed, washed and bathed in cold water. And when they grew up in like four or five, they've kind of had a r- very rejection or resistance to, to, to taking showers or being mm-hmm. in water. What, you know, uh, how is those things? Because now I, I'll let you look talk about it or, you know, uh, explain it from, um, from polyvagal um, lens. And then I'll, 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 I'll chip in what, what happens. And I'm taking this, you know, water temperature as a very simple example. There are so many different things, but this is something, it's not someone being mean or abusive or anything. It's just, and it could be to the baby. This is just too cold. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was with Courtney, um, my co-trainer, part of our training team together the other day, and we were in Portland, Maine, and there was somebody there with a very tiny baby. I'm going to guess two, three weeks old max. And it was on the cooler side. And this little baby didn't have a hat on. It had like long sleeves and long pants and socks and I was like, oh my gosh, I just think that baby is cold. And like both of us were kind of like, oh, I hope it's okay. You know, what's happening? And then I was like, you know, I hear these stories of like people in in northern parts, you know, colder climates where they put the babies outside to sleep, you know, like on a screened porch or something that the not the adults, but the babies sleep mm-hmm. out there. And of course. I think they're all bundled up. So maybe it's just the cold air they're breathing. So I do think our bodies can acclimate though, either way, depending on a lot of physiological um, components of our body. Um, And then the, you know, there's this big thing about cold plunging and cold water and how it impacts our epinephrine, norepinephrine and cortisol. And when that gets spiked through 
exposure to cold water for very cold water for a minimum of two minutes where we're submerged or letting the shower hit us, that that when those levels come down of cortisol epinephrine and norepinephrine, we get this long extended release of dopamine. And that is our feel good, um, uh, one of our feel good hormones. And so it raises our mood. I don't know of any research that relates some of those concepts to babies. And I, as a whole, I'm not really good with anything that somebody says, this is the right way for everybody, because every nervous system is different. Even as we're born anatomically and physiologically the same with our nervous system, our life you know, experiences inform that. So we see, you know, people who maybe have had more trauma, their nervous system might be more dysregulated than somebody who was attended to and and cared for on a continual basis with minimal rupture and then lots of repair, right? Because that's really, we're going to rupture. We're going to rupture in every single relationship we have. And if we can get good at repair with respect to the individual we're with, mm. that's what's building that nervous system and that capability to be happy in the world. Mm. Um, so I can't really speak to is cold water right for babies. I will say that across the board, pay attention to a baby's body language. Mm and vocal bursts, because that is how they're telling us if they're okay with something. And it's also important to notice what looks like shutdown. Like, yeah. oh, they're quiet. They're good babies. Wait a minute. Oh, Wait a minute. yes, Amy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Preach to the choir, right? I think this is really, really important. It's like, what is the difference? Because... Yeah. Uh, what is different that from, you know, uh, a happy, you know, baby? And I know there, the social engagement tells us a lot, but there's a lot that might not be obvious to many from that shutdown. Yeah. How, how can you tell? tell the it's so fascinating because I was talking to my 23-year-old daughter about this last night. And, and she was saying, I feel like a lot of my life, I just was alone and maybe I was anxious and afraid. And I just said to her, you know, the sense I got was that you were just self-contained, that you were okay playing by yourself. You didn't ask me and I pushed you away. And so you said, okay, I have to do this. I would just like be in the room with you. And if you started playing on your own and didn't interact with me, I might pick up my knitting or whatever, but it wasn't this sort of push away. It, yeah. The invitation for connection was always there. And so when we're looking at babies and trying to understand, is this them shutting down or is this them just sort of needing a break and coming back and they're still developing socially? is really looking at what happens for them when they're social engagement mm -hmm. and looking at their body. So, um, you know, if the baby's constantly like tense and holding, I'm going to take a look at what's going on because that's our body is designed to have the flexibility to be tense and holding when we need to, but also to relax. 
mm-hmm. into stillness, into ease within our body. And so again, listening to the, the tones of the baby's cries, their body posture, their eye contact, what kind of engagement they want to do or not do, that's what will give you the sign to are they shutting down and being a good baby because they've learned if I cry, nobody will come, so why should I cry? You know, or are they just sort of using that flexibility that they're developing in their nervous system by having good co-regulation? It's interesting. And, you know, it's it's good thing that there's no formula, but actually it, it's, it sucks that there is no formula. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and I, I want to, again, say, because that conversation you had with your daughters is beautiful because I know for for many, many parents and, you know, and those that I know uh, personally or that I worked with uh, in coaching, it's, you know, we most parents really are trying to do the best they can. It's mm-hmm. just we sometimes we have no idea, first mm-hmm. of all, what we're supposed to do. And what we're doing is um, how it affects the kids. And I, I think it's a div- development. I don't think it's logical or, you know, doable that babies having their needs met 100% of the time, even with attunement. I was so relieved when I heard this 33%. I was like, oh, what? Why didn't anyone tell me this before? Right. And that co-regulation. And I think one of our favorite topic in that in the, in the foundation training is rupture and repair. And mm-hmm. uh, I think as a parent, I was so stressed from creating any rupture mm-hmm. that I've created a lot of ruptures unknowingly, and I didn't know how to repair. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure there isn't any question that gets going on with this, but how maybe if we could do, you could say something to how parents who are now bombarded or, you know, know a lot of information about co-regulation and the need for that. How can we also just sit back and relax a bit and enjoy that ventral co-regulation without something or someone letting us know that we are not doing what we're supposed to do and we're kind of ruining our children. So getting off social media, right? I remember when my kids were little, that TV show, The Nanny, was popular. Not yeah. the not the comedy one, but yes, like the yeah. British nanny who would yeah. tell you how to raise your kids. And I remember trying to do something she said and just my daughter ending up in tears and I was ending up in tears. And I told my husband what I was trying to do. And he said, we're not going to watch that TV show anymore. Yeah. Right? <laughs> just, we're going to have to. And, and what I came to, because we parented very differently than any of my siblings did and differently than my parents did and and differently than my husband's family. And, you know, there were some opinions thrown around and I had done research. My mom called me the most overeducated new mom on the face of the earth because I would just read everything. And what I finally came down to is it's important to do what works in your house you know, there's opinions about one parent should stay home. And then other people are like, no, we didn't. My kids, the kids are doing great. You know, I, and I think it really, um, 
the, the parents being regulated themselves is going to be the biggest indicator of what happens for the kiddos. So no matter what choice, no matter what parenting path you choose to go down, I feel like as parents, the number one thing we can do is regulate ourselves and then just understand that our children also have their own nervous system. And to the extent that we can respect that while holding the container for the whole family is the most important. So we used to say, you know, some people say the parents are the most important. The marriage is the most important. The kids are the most important. I would say us as a whole is the most important. And at different times, somebody gets to step in the center and be more cared for. So when the babies are new, they get a lot of attention. But as they start to gain independence and skill and autonomy, they move into this circle. And that even with our kids at 20 and 23, that there still are times where, you know, my husband might move into the circle if he's having needs and the three of us support him. And then so it's more of this flexibility instead of a hierarchy of who's most important or whose needs should be forgotten or not forgotten, you know? Oh, I absolutely love this analogy, Amy. It's just that yeah. it's, it's, it's really us, uh, the most important. And, and I like how, you know, every once in a while, someone needs to be in the center. And that I think is, is especially for mothers. And I'm, of course, yes. now my mother, I'm biased. <laughs> because there's so much that you know put on the shoulders of of mothers of you know how kids come up and all, all of that but sometimes the mother needs to be in that center mm -hmm. and for many uh mothers they feel guilty about being yeah. in that center and they don't want to do that and feel like, oh, no, it has to be the children always in the center. Mm -hmm. So I love that. And it's not a matter of I don't like the word, you know, balance, work, home balance. It's just to me, it feels very unattainable and wobbly. But that's yeah. like, yeah, it's it's a wonderful um, analogy to have and something to look at. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So how do mothers I want to say something that happened last night where I was <laughs> like, finally. So in the same conversation, my daughter looked at me and said, you have carried the mental and emotional load for this family, all of it for the whole time I've been alive. And I just said, thank you. I have because I felt it, you know. And the kids would be like, dad always cuts the grass. Dad always takes us places that, you know, like dad always does everything. And I'm like, he does a lot. There's no doubt. But there is a part of this that I hold that you all don't see. And they never got it. So for her to say that, I was like, oh. but I do think it's really important for women to, um, there's no one right way. But I think it's important for us to examine our own values and then sort of make a, a checklist of sorts, not really like a list we write down, but how do I know I'm living by my values? 
So if my my value is I want my kids to grow up and be independent and have a lot of autonomy, am I parenting them in a way that gives them that? I reflect back to when my daughter was looking at colleges. So this was like, what, five or six years ago. And hearing this mom who was speaking on the panel as having college students saying, oh, no, you can talk to them all the time. My 26-year-old still calls and asks for ideas for lunch or what he should make for lunch. And I was like, your 26-year-old doesn't know what to make themselves for lunch. You know, like. There's a, for me, that's not, I don't want, I don't mind helping with a recipe or talking about possible lunches every once in a while, but if they call every day, what should I get for lunch? I'm like, that's not my value, right? I want them to have that autonomy to be able to go into the world. So, um, but the, every mother is, it deserves grace for the decision she's making. And I really encourage every mother to decide for herself what her values are and then to decide what hills she's willing to go to battle on and leave the rest alone. (laughs) That's as you're saying, you know, know your values. uh, To me, that feels very uh, ventral state of like alignment. Um, yes. is what's important to me and this is what I uh, I need to be doing so it's there also that's when we're regulated yeah. you know it all goes into the, you know together and I yeah. think um, I had a thought and I completely uh, lost it but I, it will come back at some point but <laughs> that's that's when I realized that I am you know um, the co-regulator Mm-hmm. And so to speak, or the you know where I take the biggest part of the co-regulation of the family, mm-hmm. I, I and that all you know thanks to polyvagal and understanding how my nervous system is is working. Like no, I need to create more capacity for myself, so I mm-hmm. have my own resources, whether it's yeah. a co-regulation with others or nature or something that I can be. A co-regulator to to my kids, my husband, to to whatever I I need to be doing. Yes. So it's um it's almost essential. If I am not, if I don't have capacity, and I used to tell my kids when they were younger not to wake me up. If I am not, if I don't sleep enough, I'm not a nice person. Mm-hmm. I, that's a fact. Now I know about myself, and I know it comes out differently in in different ways, but. Yeah. If I don't have capacity, if I can't self-regulate, I'm not really um, a nice person to be around and I'm not going to make good decisions and I'm going right. to, I'm not going to repair when I rupture. I'm going to, it's, it's, it's a lot of this. So creating that capacity and knowing when we need to co-regulate to be a good co-regulators. And I love, um, Dr. Porges, uh, I think he said it, I don't know where exactly, um, our sort of goal in life is to be good enough co-regulators. Mm-hmm. And then that is... Um, to create enough safety. Enough safety. It doesn't have to be full safety, just enough. Enough. Emotional safety to do what we need to do. Oh, I yeah. used to, um, I used to tell my kids I'm not accepting questions right now. 
<laughs> and they would say, for how long? And then, you know, you want to put it in their perspective. So I would say the length of Victoria's George. Just <laughs> when you need that little bit of a break from like, please just let me cook in peace or please just let me pay the bills in peace or whatever. And, um, and as long as I would get back to them and circle back, they learned to respect that rhythm where I could simply ask for what I needed. And, you know, and like in early mornings, TV, I'm not good with it. I know a lot of people pop it on as soon as the kids get up and that's kind of a distraction. And this one's over here so I can do this. But for me, it was too much on my nervous system. So we found some quiet music that we all liked. And then TV was only limited to if you get everything done and you're ready to walk out the door for school, then you can watch something until it's time to go. Right. So setting up systems that respect my nervous system so I can better co-regulate with them. And and not that it and it and that decision also has to be kind to their nervous system. It can't be like, well, I want to listen to heavy metal in the morning. That's what regulates me. Sorry if you don't like it. Right. So it's that flow and that balance. Yeah. I think it's, um, I'm, when you're talking about that for me, it's always like prioritizing their needs hundred percent of the time, all the time Uh, is, is a disastrous formula because then there is no time for me to, to breathe or do something and, and, and constantly be there. And then be completely depleted and kind of just but didn't ask for help didn't ask for five minutes quiet and I think for me that's a whole different uh, story but that was have modeled uh, in the past for me as being harsh as being uh, so my nervous system was even would go completely dysregulated with not having their needs met so it was kind of a very interesting thankfully and the nervous system kind of rewires and reshapes and, and, you know, it all works. And you learn to repair, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to be very clear. I have some good ideas, but there were plenty of times <laughs> where I was not re- well regulated with my kids, even though that was my goal. We have bumps and ruptures and, and, and I feel like we're still repairing. Yeah. You know, the conversation I had with my 23-year-old last night was reparative for both of us. Yeah. And hopefully that sort of growth together just continues. Yeah, well, yeah. Amy, time flies uh, with the oh, conversation, does. but it, it, I think that's, you know, repair is always is ongoing. And yes. I think that's one of the things that gives me a sigh of relief. Yes. If it's not repairable, then we well, I guess what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing much to do. So it's it's a it's beautiful to know that there's continual um you know room for repair. So before you end, anything you feel you want to add to parents on co-regulation or any yeah, just be really gentle with yourself. Know that you can regulate within yourself and Whatever it is that inspires awe in you, if that's God, however you name God or art or nature, you know, there are sources within and without and also among other people and to rely on that to help get us through and to remember that their nervous system 
is probably more important than the kids because the kids are going to follow it. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we can look at it as a, an obligation or an opportunity, right? So if we try to look at it as an opportunity... It's good. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. Speak for another hour, but we'll leave it to that. Yeah. Thank you very much for being with us. Yeah. um, Anything you'd like to the, you know, people who are listening to know about you or your work, I'll put the link to your website through the. Yeah. I mean, so I own a private practice that specializes in working from the nervous system perspective, including polyvagal theory and a lot of different types of therapy, drama therapy, EMDR, ACT, you know, somatic work that uh, helps support people, especially people whose nervous systems are dysregulated through trauma. And, um, you know, if we can be helpful in Ohio to anybody, we'd love to do it. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll hear more from you in the future. And maybe cool. meet you in person one day. I would love that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Amy. Thank you.